0: As you may know, in a little under a month, the Parish Hall at St. Peter's will be the home to Lantern Theater's production of Shakespeare's Macbeth, with our very own Peggy Cromwell and Jeff Ward playing the principal roles. Now, Peggy didn't pay me to make a plug for the production, but I'm sure if you have any questions, she'd be willing to entertain those after the service. So, is that OK, Peggy? Now, Macbeth is one of Shakespeare's most infamous tragedies infamous in part because even mentioning its name in a theater is thought to cause disaster. So instead it's referred to as the Scottish play, based on where it takes place. Now it's a superstition, but well the air conditioning did go out at the Lantern Theater just as they went into rehearsal. So I don't know, who knows. I, I'm not too worried to mention, it up, mention the name up here though, since we're not in a theater and well I think we've got access to a little higher power. That being said, maybe take a little extra care when you leave this afternoon, uh, or uh, uh, because we never know. Today's Gospel reading about Herod and John the Baptizer has, for me, a number of parallels with Macbeth. The whole piece reads a bit like a theatrical tragedy, and not least of all because of the amount of detail we're given. The writer of Mark is known for his economy of writing, it's clean, to the point. Now remember, even in chapter 1, Jesus sees Simon and Andrew fishing, and with a simple, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, they drop everything and go with them. And James and John come next and leave their poor father Zebedee in the boat. These call stories don't have a lot of back and forth, no detail. Much like the rest of Mark, they are simple and efficient, clear and to the point. By contrast, we spent a lot of time today with Herod and his kind of messed up family. There are a lot of details. The story is itself a flashback. We're in the middle of Jesus sending his disciples out and that very act triggers Herod's memory. He thinks Jesus is John, resurrected. In a way, he thinks he's hearing about a ghost and it tr- it troubles him. It makes him anxious. Another ghost, Banquo, plays a big role in Macbeth for Macbeth and Like for Herod, its appearance triggers a good deal of regret and shame. And Herod's wife, Herodias, she's long had it out for John. She, like Lady Macbeth in the play, is a kind of evil mastermind behind the events. John knows that she and Herod have broken Jewish law because Herod married his brother's wife. And with the kind of outrage that often comes out of guilt, she schemes to have John murdered. She gets her chance when Herod's stepdaughter, also confusingly named Herodias in this reading, elsewhere she's more famously known as Salome, uh, and the subject of a fantastic Oscar Wilde play and an even better Strauss opera. Herodias, or Salome, dances her way into Herod's heart, and he, in a show of bravado in front of his guests, offers her anything she asks for, even half his kingdom. Now, these are some messed up family values. Herodias, the mom, plots to have John killed. Herodias, the daughter, lets herself be used by her mom and asks for the gruesome evidence of the murder, John's head, on a platter. And Herod, with his combination of weakness and pride, lead him to order the very thing he knows is wrong. And to make matters worse, Herod is not actually king. He's not the King Herod that we know from Matthew, but in fact, that Herod's son, Herod Antipas. And he was appointed by Rome as a puppet of the state. So he boasts about giving half his kingdom away, but in reality, he has no kingdom to give. It's all Rome's. The Interpreter's Bible calls this an act of intoxicated expansion. And I love that, intoxicated expansion. And intoxicated not due to the wine that was no doubt being served at the banquet, but to the illusion of power that he has in the moment in front of his family and guests. So why this story, this this Shakespearean tragedy, here in the middle of the Gospel of Mark? We're barely into Jesus' ministry, and, and we veer off into Herod and his distorted world. Now, Robert Bryant suggests this interlude is placed here to tell us something more about Jesus' identity, connecting him with Elijah and with the prophets of old. And also, it's here to underscore the risk associated with faithfulness. And definitely, the story certainly points to Jesus' later interaction with Roman power, with Pontius Pilate, and its deadly consequences. And and I agree with this synopsis, but I also think there's more to take from this. I think in Herod and John, we're given guidance on two very different ways to live, Herod's way and John's way, and we might be closer to Herod than we think. You see, I've always found Herod in this reading to be a more sympathetic character than I'd like to admit. Sympathetic not because I agree with his actions or motivations, but because I can't help but see a little bit of myself in him, as awful as he may be. I wonder where I've seen ghosts, either out of guilt about things I said or did in the past, or in the illusions of security and stability in my own life. And I, like Herod, have also had my own moments of intoxicated expansion, when I've let the opinions of others, especially the opinions of others, or my own pride, let me give away empires of my own imagination. Where I have joined others in gossip or in judging, especially judging thinking my empire, my self-image, was protected enough that I could cast much of it away. And finally, and most importantly, I see Herod in myself in that he instinctively, intuitively knows what is right, what is just. Remember, he's been protecting John all of this time because he knows that John is a righteous and holy man. Herod's moral barometer is set to know right from wrong, yet he still chooses wrong. He chooses wrong out of pride, out of fear, and maybe because it makes him look strong. And that feels familiar to me. But by comparison, John's way of life looks cleaner, seems cleaner. He chooses truth above all else. He calls out truth to Herod in spite of all the great risk it entails. A lowly peasant speaking uncomfortable truths to the great king. That can, and as we see, does end poorly. But not at first. Herod is neither offended nor angered by John's truth. Instead, we're told he's in awe. He's perplexed. He's in wonder at this man who isn't caught up in the imaginary empires of his own pride or arrogance, but caught up in the righteousness and the holy. And John's way, simple as it seems, though, is also extremely dangerous. He and later Jesus pay for truth with their own lives. The truth may set you free, but the truth was, and is, dangerous. Now, today's Old Testament reading from Amos is one of my favorites. Amos, also a lowly peasant, a herdsman, we're told, and not a prophet at all, speaks truth to power. And using the architectural image of a plumb line, which is a a line or cord with a weight at one end, that's used to show how straight or how vertical a wall is, Amos' dream has God standing next to a wall that has been built with a plumb line. It was built straight. It was built right. Checking to see if it still is straight, still upright, and finds that it isn't. Now the metaphor is for the people of the upper kingdom of Israel who were created knowing what is right and have by their own doing gotten out of alignment, out of right relationship with God. Like King Herod, they knew instinctively, intuitively, what was right. They were created for it, but they have chosen wrong. And Amos prophesies their fall. This passage has long been a favorite of Christian theologians for centuries. Athanasius of Alexandria, writing in the fourth century, wrote that Christ is, for Christians, the plumb line. That we were created in alignment, in right relationship with God, but in the fall, we fell out of that relationship. And it took Christ, it took Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to get us back into that right relationship with God and with each other. And centuries later, Claire, the great friend of Francis of Assisi in Italy, would call Christ a mirror, showing us where our lives have gotten out of plumb with God and calling us to repent. That Christ shows us the true angle and dimension of our calling. And I said, yes, yes to all that. And I still think there's more for us to see. You see, often I think we focus on the Christ, on the divine, and skip over the lessons on living that we can gain from paying attention to the fully human Jesus. But in emphasizing Jesus' divinity, we give ourselves an excuse to fail. We might tell ourselves Jesus didn't face the same challenges we do because of his divinity, because of his relationship to God. Now, Jesus in Mark's Gospel is, above all else, fully human. It's his faith that lets him perform miracles and heal the sick. The same faith that lets the disciples do their own miraculous works. The same faith that we have today. Now, as many of you know, I spent a big part of last week at the Church's General Convention in Austin, Texas, and while I was there, I was able to see our presiding bishop, Michael Curry, deliver some amazing sermons. He was there in all his Michael curry and it was incredible. You guys know what I mean, where he's moving around and all this. He was, he was untethered. I noticed that he kept going back to the life of Jesus, the fully human Jesus, to find his inspiration. In his opening sermon, he repeatedly called for for us to meditate on the life and teachings of Jesus. And he said, and I quote, Before you begin your day, meditate on the life and teachings of Jesus. Before you go over to the water cooler and start whispering into somebody's ear, meditate on the life and teachings of Jesus. When we come in here to worship, meditate on the life and teachings of Jesus in everything you do. Meditate on the life and teachings of Jesus. That sounds like Bishop Curry, doesn't it? But it struck me as a simple, yet incredibly powerful way to live a life in plumb, in right relationship with God. When we meditate on the life and teachings of Jesus, and we really get them into our gut, then we can't help but be righteous, like John the Baptizer. We can't help but speak truth to power. When we meditate on the life and teaching of Jesus, we can avoid our own ghosts, our own intoxicated expansions. Our own times, we're like King Herod. When we meditate on the life and teaching of Jesus, we recover that plumb line with God, the one we were created in, the one Jesus' life, death, and resurrection put back in place, the one we were born with, and the one we each innately, intuitively and intrinsically hold. When we meditate on the life and teachings of Jesus, we are safe forever. Amen.